Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I've sat with Stephen Skinner, CEO of HB Rebus, office developer and provider, hailing from Eastern Europe, who sprung into London with a bang in 2016. So from all the headlines, Stephen, it's led to a very charmed career by the looks of things. Savile's investment city agent, starting in 2007, you ran the BNP West End uh, investment team uh, before at the young old age of 30 running the office, headhunted to lead the charge of this newest developer in London, commercial markets, before realising what must have been a lifelong ambition. Property week pin-up cover, man. Shoot 2019, I saw. Very fetching grey cardy. <laughs> Thank you very much for your sartorial... <laughs> and it just it just happened to coincide with a uh, with a promotion to chief uh, sorry CEO for HB Revis UK at the prime old age of just thirty three. So I've got to say, mate, I've, I've been really really looking forward to this. You know, the you know I I talk about accelerating careers, and that our, our audience is is very polite, putting up with me sort of talking about sort of how people who have been guests so far have been able to piece these together, these very fast accelerating. Uh, chapters, minimising the resting, igniting new periods. And, and I'm really looking forward to hearing how, how you've managed that, um, because there is no doubt you are the ideal candidate for this. Um, so should we get started? Do you want to tell me how chapter one begins? Uh, I think uh, chapter one, you probably have to go all the way back. And, you know, I I was a university dropout. Yeah. So I actually left school. And went to so so went I'm from Sheffield. I went to school in Sheffield. And actually uh, went to Sheffield University to study economics. Um, my mum was a maths teacher, and, and kind of I've always loved maths. Uh, very quickly, I realised that you know it wasn't going to teach me what what I was looking for, which was really being honest. You know how to turn one pound to two and, and, and two to three and three to four. Uh, it became way too theoretical for me. So so I actually dropped out, and I spent a year doing lots and lots of different jobs. So, you know, I was a labor on a building site, I worked for a shop fitting company, worked in a clothes shop, worked in a bar, worked in a restaurant, worked in a nightclub, just did any really kind of cash in hand jobs and very quickly realized that that would be a hard way to make a living. And so totally randomly, actually, my, my younger brother was, was looking for a university degree and he left out the prospectus for Sheffield Allen University on our kitchen table, had a flip through, saw there's a property course. I thought, oh, okay, everyone everyone seems to do well who works in property. And actually the, the course had already started. I think this was kind of October or November time. And I actually just called them up and said, look, um, you know, I have, I was a bit arrogant. I said, look, my, my, my grades are too good for your course, but I'd really like to, to, to join. Can I just turn up? And they said, yeah, sure, come on Monday. And that's really how, that's really how it started. So we started at Sheffield Hallam doing a property degree probably didn't take the first year that, that seriously. I started to take the second year more seriously, I suppose, because of kind of more 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 life events, being, being brutally honest. Um, that was the year. My, my, my mum wasn't very well and, you know, she had to stop working and then you kind of realise that you might have to look after somebody else and be responsible for one, one of your parents. It's like, okay, this this sharpens, uh, sharpens your mind very quickly. And, and from that point on, it was just razor, razor focused on, you know, education and getting into the world of, world of work. 
that course uh, was a was a four year course. The third year was a placement year. So you know, I applied to all these different places to try and get a year's placement. I had uh, my first, and I ended up working for, for Leeds City Council, which was actually a really, really enjoyable job. I remember day one, they gave me a portfolio of 67 properties. I had to go and visit every single tenant every two weeks. I, I went around Leeds in my little Citroen Saxo visiting all these tenants. And it, was, it was great. And, you know, I, I remember that was my first ever proper, well, my first ever job interview, right? And I didn't even have work clothes. I remember going, going on Sheffield, buying a suit, buying a shirt, buying a tie, and almost ran out of money, needed a pair of shoes, went into a shoe shop, found a pair of brown shoes, because back then I was, you know, totally naive that, uh, especially back then, nobody wore brown shoes. And they were super cheap. And I asked the guy, I was like, why are these so cheap? And he said, of course, they're odd size. And what size are these? He said, one's, one's an eight, one's a nine. I said, they'll do. I have those, because I've run out of money now. So with my odd, with my odd brown shoes, trotted off to the interview Leeds City Council and really got, got that job. And like I say, I, I totally loved it. Around that time, again, being honest, in my placement year, I met a lovely girl uh, who's going to be a lawyer. And she was going to be a lawyer in London. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So, you know, totally love, love this girl. And I need to find a job in London. A totally naive to, you know, summer placement schemes and work experience, no connections. You know, just really, really have no idea how it, how it works. And so I hand-wrote letters. Actually, I've got the, either the States Gazette or Fox News directory. Um, and literally, I hand-wrote letters to all, every firm listed in there. Um, not knowing which ones were good, which ones were bad. And, uh, you know, offering to work for free, I actually said I'd, I'd you know, pay myself. Uh, so I would pay them for me, me being there just to give me, uh, you know, the, the opportunity. And uh, only one only one replied. Uh, and I remember uh, working at Leeds Council. We had flexi time. I was, in, I was in the gym in Leeds. And this London number called me and I answered. And it was a lady called Petra Saul from uh, Savile saying, oh, we'd like to offer you two weeks work experience and you know, guess what, we'll even pay you. And I, I really remember that clearly because that was really kind of the first chance to, to make it to London. So uh, I got two weeks work experience at, at Savills, spent the first half a day in hotels uh, and then they moved into valuation because I think somebody had left the valuation team that had an urgent need for somebody to just do work, I'm guessing. Um, and I was very fortunate to be placed with uh, a guy called Nick Hume and a lady called Tricia Castley who, who really looked after me for my work experience there and I really remember arriving at Sowers in London and I just loved it so much you know I was I was in the big city prestigious firm on Barclays Square all these amazing people I remember the first days hearing people talk about you know Aston Martins and swimming pools and I was just like I was like wow you know this really opened my eyes to you know what what could be and what could be achieved if you just work really hard so Two weeks work experience turned into, I think, around three or four months till I had to go back to university. Went back to university, finished my degree, and actually Savills had been really kind in um, giving me a guaranteed job for when I finished my university degree. Uh, so I went back there, and originally it was it was a job just in the evaluation team that they'd offered me directly rather than on the whole scheme. And they, they said, oh, you need to rotate, and they put me into city investment where I think I was, I, was, I was pretty lucky because someone again had just left, I think, um, to go and work for sales in the US. So there was a slot there for me and, and arrived at a very, a very small team working for a guy called James Crawford, uh, who was a bit kind of a, an ex-military uh, military man, super structured, super organized. And, you know, I looked up to him as a, as a mentor for a long time. And, but, but basically, I, I joined that team just as a kind of GFC hit. There was only three of us and 
I was told in a very nice way uh, to not be a cost or drag on their profitability and you know do what you like, just go and build some money for us. So that was a kind of pretty entrepreneurial start to, to life at Savills, and you know that got me excited and thinking about uh, how do I make a business out of this because I really don't have to go back to Sheffield and tell everyone I got fired in the middle of a recession. So I'd say that was that was that was the early part. If that's if that's not too much of a long explanation. <laughs> well, let's let me pick up on that that last bit there. Yeah. You, you know, that's definitely the stick, isn't it? About saying, you know, right, you got to you got to swim to keep a keep a float in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. But yeah. I mean, how did that actually make you feel? Was it you know, did that strike sort of fear, or was that sort of was that delight? I was just blissfully unaware, to be honest, because like I said, I didn't really have any experience or exposure to you know these type of professional careers or or surveying or investment agency in general and it was you know james was very good providing with the tools the structure was all there right he was he was so detailed about how he filed every piece of information everything about a client and the tools are there and then it was just you know can you use the tools and to me it was a it was a challenge and it felt really entrepreneurial and i really enjoyed it it was good it was great it was a bit scary. It was a bit scary, but I, d- I don't think I realised I didn't know what I was doing. I just got on with it. Uh, and what were you doing then in these in these early days? You know, running rogue. I mean, first of all, I would do whatever whatever James and his colleague Felix would would say, and I would make sure that that was done, you know, totally perfectly. So I think I, I, I worked super hard for a start, and then secondly, just you know, I would you know, what was the job? So it was it was trying to have clients who wanted to use you to buy or sell buildings. So, you know, what do I need? I need a client. So, you know, pretty quickly, I just started almost cold calling or cold emailing people wanting to meet. I think uh, some of those people respected the fact that I was just trying and, and also trying to be really honest with what I told them. So I remember telling people not to do things as, as much as to do them. Um, so I was just kind of making it up as I was going on, really. Okay. Was there a plan at this point? No, no plan. The plan was, being honest, the plan was once I was there and in that team, I mean, it sounds a little bit cliche, but every day was just a day I never expected to have. And, uh, you know, I was just going to try and make the most of the opportunity. I'd do anything to keep that job, anything to succeed in that job. There's no plan. There's no plan. Okay, put it in this way. You pulled a plug on an economics degree because it wasn't going to get you somewhere. Yeah. But you are now. You are now. You, you've made a big move. You've changed education. You've changed city from sort of inner Sheffield now to to central London. You've got. Yeah. You're working with Savills in the city. It's, you know, I, I can't imagine a, a bigger sort of change in terms of sort of atmosphere and sort of scenery. Um, no. But you didn't pull the plug now. Why? What What was it that really got you got you stuck? Uh, I think it was just I felt lucky to be there. I felt lucky that I was in, you know, working for an amazing company, because um, by then I'd realised, you know, Savills was a good one, um, in an amazing team. You know, everybody at that point wanted to be in the investment seat. And, you know, the, the people around me at, at Savills really helped me, and I felt I felt invested in by those people. So whether it was, you know, like a, a James Crawford working directly for him or, you know, and Emma Saunders, who ran the graduate team, right up to kind of, you know, a Mark Ridley, who, who would, you know, take time out of his day to come and talk to all of us and know us personally. And, you know, you felt, I felt slightly emotionally invested in Savills. I think that's why, that's why I stayed there for a while. Well, you, you offered me a bit of a, a segue then, didn't you? Because 
Uh, you were there for approximately two, three years, I think, from uh, from memory. Mm-hmm. And then there's a there's a change afoot, isn't there? So anyone having a nose uh, on on LinkedIn or anyone who knows you, they're expecting us to talk about uh, BMP. But there's something that happened just before that move, wasn't there? I, I think something that that didn't happen. Yeah, I think I think early on, I think maybe two or three years after being qualified, I was actually offered a job working for a client. And I think by by that by that stage, two or three years in, I realised that you know that's where I wanted to be. I didn't see myself being a city investment agent for 30 years like you know James had been, although he was he was really good at it. And you know I accepted that role with the client. And then Savills Savills really went out of their way to persuade me persuade me to stay. Um, kind of had a had a different role internally, which was with somebody else really setting up an Asia, Asia desk. And actually that was probably the first point where I started to think a little bit strategically about my career because having had, you know, gone through all the interviews for the, for the client side job, you know, the one weakness I, was, I, I kept hearing back from them was, oh, he only has city experience. He doesn't know anything in the city. So moving into this more international role for me was, was a little bit strategic in the fact, you know, it gave me, different sectors and different geographies of products in the UK. But I suppose to answer your question, I spent the next, I don't know how long, really probably until I came to, to HBR, re- regretting that move because I knew then it was it was what I really wanted to do and I should have done it then. Okay. Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. uh, that, you know, that, that role, that move to the client side didn't come, didn't come then. Um, but not long, not long after that, you'd make a move then to to BMP. Um, yeah, and I believe that is, you started off moving to BMP back into staying within the city. Is that right? But you didn't stay there long. No, I mean, so honestly, what happened is you know the international role didn't really work out. I went back into the city team in Savills, uh, and that was really kind of the beginning of the end. You know, I think Savills bought another business. We came, we became um, much bigger, and I was used to working in a very small team. And I think I was looking. I was looking to go back into that very small, almost like niche within a big firm entrepreneurial environment if I was going to stay in in agency. And uh, I had a call one day from a guy called John Slade, who I didn't really know of, never knew, saying, you know, I've been recommended to you by a lawyer. Uh, I went to meet him and a guy called Paul Avery. And, you know, they de- they described what they were going to try and do at BNP, which was really, you know, set up some successful investment teams from scratch. And so, you know, when went there, as you say, originally in, in the city. And after about a year or so, again, being honest, I was I was a little bit restless. I didn't enjoy that year particularly much. Um, so I was moaning them a little bit about, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if this is a, the place long-term for me. And they said, okay, why, why don't you go to the West End and run the investment team? I was like, oh, okay. So this is, this is taking me back to the thoughts of, again, broadening my experience base by getting to know different market but you know slightly challenging that they're sending to a market you don't know because i used to be city obsessed right i had you know city maps on my walls i take city maps on holiday police expiry schedules i knew everything about the city but nothing about the west end barely knew where it was so yeah they they, they said do you want to go and do running the west end investment team um, like i said a bit intimidating because didn't know the market didn't have the contacts there and actually there's a there's a team of four or five and everyone was older than me. Even the even even the graduate was older than me. And you know, again, I think that opportunity came because someone had just left. So the, the person who was running that team left, and you know, PMP asked me to go there. So at that point, I I, I made I made the move over to the West End. 
you mentioned about the age there. How old were you, do you think? 29 or 30, probably 30, just. Why do you think, why do you think they asked you to do it? I think they knew that being successful was really important to me. And I think actually more than that, they know or they knew that I really hated letting people down. So, you know, if, if they give me a challenge, I say I'll do something, then I really don't like failing um, or making any excuses. I think I have a pretty strong, you know, will to win or, or achieve. And, you know, what that job needed really was the perseverance to do it. So I think I had the perseverance to, to keep going, to to do what needed to be done to, to make that team successful. And, you know, I think they've probably seen that I'm not that great at compromising. So, you know, if something's 90% good for me, then it's really not good. Yeah, and we need, we really need to push to make sure we, we get it too good, which is 100% in my view. So I think they just thought I was, you know, on the right side of being difficult and kind of entrepreneurial enough to do what needed to be done to try and make it work. And they knew I wasn't going to go there and just sit there and be passive. You know, that I would, I would try and make changes. Uh, I slightly sucker punched you into this because I was curious to know what you thought because I spoke I spoke to several of them actually a bit, a bit of background. I'm scared. I'm scared. <laughs> so I asked I asked them the same question: their early impressions of this this late twenty uh, steamed Skinner, um, mm. very smart, extremely determined, and very organised. There's a book coming. Yeah, but Stephen was different to his peers. He was very, very shrewd who he spent his time with. You'd rarely see him in conversation with peers internally or other agents. And arguably his profile was very low as a consequence. But he held court with a very small number of real influencers. And they thought very, very highly of him. Does that sound accurate? Uh, I mean, I'll let them judge if I'm smart or not. And I think the, the last point... You know, it sounds probably more political than it ever was. I think um, I don't have a need to be liked, right? So some of that agency community is about having friends and you know, doing things on the weekends and having some common interests. And, you know, the vast majority of people um, who I work with back then, I had no common interest with whatsoever and, and you know, kept at a distance. And yeah, you know, in my in my day to day job, who would I spend my time with? The people who, who made decisions, and whether that was you know clients or in, internally, yeah, maybe. But no, I mean, it wasn't. I don't think it was a deliberate tactical ploy for me. And I think you know, it's probably gone in phases. My attitude, you know, first was kind of the drive to get there. Second, to be kind of accepted and, and useful. And then it was kind of not to not to fail or, or fall off and maximise the opportunity. And you know, the people who would give me the opportunities. You know, maybe, maybe, yeah, spend more time talking to them. Okay. And and how was that transition? And you you mentioned about some of the difficulties about sort of having everyone in the office then older than you. You've got, you mentioned the difficulties about not knowing a thing about about the West End, <laughs> but you made yeah. it work. We know we know that you know, history history says you made that work. How? Uh, I mean, it was really difficult. I'll be honest. It was. I remember it was a period of my time when I just had first baby. Second one didn't follow. Uh, along behind and you know the, the people didn't want me there right it was it was clear that the you know the vast majority apart from one of them didn't like me being there didn't like the push from me to try and achieve try and have you know perfection everything we did increase the the standards become 
you know, not not friends with clients, but useful to clients. You know, we could be trusted to, to to get things done. So, you know, it was tough. We did it step by step. We changed some people. I was fortunate to have one existing guy there who really supports me and the team, and then brought in some other younger guys who who were more receptive to the change that I was trying to impart onto that onto that team. And then, you know, going back to the senior people at BNP, I have to say, you know, whether, uh, you know, there's three, three people that I did feel really supported by, which gave me the confidence to keep going to try and make it succeed. So obviously John Slade, Paul Adrian and Sam Williams, the three of those who are really running the UK business, you know, when when and if I ever had moments of self-doubt, they, they, they helped me with that and really kind of pushed me to, no, you can do this, keep doing it. I know it's difficult. People are complaining about you, but, you know, it's almost, it's good they're complaining about you because you're, you're pushing them. So it's tough, but you know we, we we got it done in the end. I think you you mentioned those um, those three people. Yeah. And again, part part of my research, something else that came up around this sort of time, and, and they they often said they felt they had more confidence in you than you had in yourself, and and actually it was it was a hard sell to get you to make that move, yeah. and it was an even harder sell to make to make that next internal move. Tell us a bit more about what what that was. So we've moved across from the city to the West End. You're now running investment in the West End. What's the next? Yep. What's the next move internally, BNP? Uh, I mean, so you know, they, they asked me to then run the whole office, which is all the all the various business lines that we offered. And I suppose the, the challenge was for me at that point, <laughs> st- still in a market I don't understand that well, still with not enough not enough connections, but then also being asked to you know manage other teams, other people's businesses, a whole office as PL create a business strategy for, you know, what, what do I know about the rating team or property management or you know, valuation or whatever else? Like, you know, that was that was kind of exciting and daunting at the same time. And also, you know, at that point, you know, my, my day job was being directly with clients doing investment transactions. I knew that um, moving to that role would, would take me away from that. And, you know, I can't remember how old I am at this point, but maybe 32, 31, something like that, to think actually, you know, to, to take yourself out of day-to-day dealing with clients at that point is a bit early. But actually, I really enjoyed it. I actually really enjoyed moving away from day-to-day trying to do investment deals to actually run, running a business. It was it was a very different um, thought process required. And again, you know, to turn an underperforming office um, into a profitable office was something that I was slightly obsessed with in terms of making it happen. And, you know, it's, it's very nice that they have those comments that they believed in more than I believed in myself. But, you know, I think I said to you at the start, I find this difficult to do because I don't really like talking about myself in terms of um, positive things. Because for, for me, I find it very difficult to meet my own expectations. And, you know, if I achieve something, it's always too late and it's always not enough. So, you know, I think that, that's probably the insecurity that drives me quite hard that they're referring to in terms of they probably believed in me more than I believed in myself. So what's it like to what was it like then to work for a for a younger Stephen? You know, given given what you mentioned there about sort of your your own sort of lack of contentment in your own results. Yeah. You know, how hard a taskmaster were you to, to people who worked for you? I think there's there's a couple of phases, I suppose, in, in my career looking back with that that I wouldn't be as proud of. One is the phase of, you know, me rather than we. So I think at some points in my ambition to succeed, it was way more about me than it should have been about other people. That that did slightly, I think it did change a lot when, 
you know, you, you suddenly, you know, your results are only achieved through, through other people. But there was a period where it was too much about me. That was, that was tricky. And then I was pretty uncompromising to people. I have a certain standard of expectations, which some people may see as unreasonable. And I found it very difficult for, for a period where, you know, we were trying to turn a loss making business into something that could be profitable. And, you know, people weren't willing to do what I, what I was willing to do. And I think later on, certainly now, I realized that was me being probably terribly unreasonable. You know, why are you not answering your phone at half past 10 at night? Why, why are you turning your phone off when you go on holiday? Why can't you talk to me on a Sunday? You know, those things used to really, really frustrate me. And I think actually learning to manage people better and, you know, realizing that, you know, I only can deliver success through having really engaged and motivated people. And, you know, there's two ways to do that. It's not just a stick. And I think for in the early part of being given that responsibility, I was, I was way more stick. Okay. If I take a moment, I, talk, I spoke about at the outset and I, and I keep talking about every episode about these chapters in people's careers. You know, everyone starts off accelerating because they have to. It's the start of their career. It's sink or swim. And then that naturally slows and they move into the next period of resting. And the people who I've invited so far as guests have, have this innate ability to quicken that pace or quicken the time they spend resting and find a way to reignite that, that next stage of accelerating. We've talked sort of quite quickly over, over these first something like seven, seven years of your career. I'm not sure I've spotted a resting chapter yet. <laughs> I'm not sure you've <laughs> sat still long enough. What I am curious about is sort of at what point, having sort of rattled through these ranks with with BMP, did you allow yourself then a chance to think what might be next? I suppose the what the what might be next is the opposite of resting, there, right? Because the opposite what might be next is you know planning the planning the acceleration. I think from you know just just to pick up on the the resting versus accelerating. I've never I've never really wanted a rest. I like the progress. I like regular progress i see it as you know a sign of achievement but it's not it's not something that i sit down and plan thinking okay i must do this i must do that i must find a way to accelerate my, my career it's kind of it's kind of just it's kind of just happened well it probably happens because you presumably you hit a hurdle right or you, you hit a period which suddenly it feels unnatural because you're not moving at the same pace you might have done can you think of a time at bmp where you did that where a period where you you didn't feel you were accelerating or, or developing as quickly as you might like i think once i was running the whole office there and things were slightly more stable there was a there was a period where obviously there's there's, there's nowhere really else for me to go at, at that point and then also you know there was, there was quite a lot of talk about what was happening with the, the bmp business in terms of you know, certainly they're looking at some some corporate acquisitions then, and you know what would what the what would be the future for me then? So that was that was I suppose a moment of of concern, which kind of injected some thought into okay, what what do I do next? And at that point, I think I was very grateful to have had uh, to have made the decision to go to the West End to broaden the experience, and then also to you know have, have taken on a more management role there as well. Okay then, Steve. So as a timestamp then for the audience listening. You're now managing the office and it's uh, things are going well. It's probably mid-2016, I think, is, we, yeah. uh, is what we're going to agree on. At that point, then, it's, I think it, maybe, this, maybe this is the, the start of a resting chapter, you know, thing that seems to sort of um, uh, strike fear in, uh, in you. Um, did you know what was coming next? Did you, did you, I, mean, I asked the question about planning. Did you, uh, no. I think um, 
at that point, considering my age, years of experience against the, the position that I held, I think I kind of, I'm reluctant to use the word resign myself because, you know, that sounds negative, but it was more that actually I, I was in an opportunity at BNP that I'd, I would very much struggle to replicate elsewhere. So actually thinking about moving to another advisory business or, or to a client with that level of responsibility and, and influence and ability to impact, I'd kind of decided was was pretty unlikely for me. So, you know, if it came if it came up at some point, that would be fine. But really I had to spend the next, you know, the next chapter as you describe of that career, really, really proving that I could maintain it there at BNP. So I think that that's what I'd I'd started to focus on at that point. What do you think you needed to learn? What was the thing that you you most wanted to develop in that in that in those next few years, wherever it might well be? I think at that point, you know, there was a there was a slide before there was a clear rotation for me out of thinking narrowly or you know in the micro detail to, to more macro, thinking more strategically about generally building a business, not individual real estate transactions. And I think the big the big shift to me was was the focus on people and, and really trying to understand how I can influence or help or enable or give confidence to the people who are out there kind of executing the, the business strategy or plan that, that we came up with. And the kind of, whether it's the psychology of that or the strategy of that, that's what I was really starting to focus my, my time on. Okay. Well, let's introduce then the, the next chapter. What, what comes next? Well, what comes next, Nick, as you all know, is you calling me about a job, right? <laughs> well, you just um, dropped me in so, it royally now, haven't you? Oh, sorry. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. That's why I'm here, isn't it? Um, so, so, so I remember one evening standing in my bedroom, holding one of my children, and actually it was your colleague that called me, right? First? Yeah, Nina. Yeah? So she called me about a different job. I was like, interested, sorry. And then I think, from memory, you shouted out in the background to her, what about the, the Slovak one or what about the HBR one, right? <laughs> so which she kind of parroted down the phone to me what you were saying to her about this job. And, you know, basically what I heard was, would you like to work for a Slovak developer? Now, at that point, I was like, I don't know where Slovakia is. Uh, sounds a bit sketchy. Yeah, send me the job spec across. I'll, I'll have a look. And so had uh, had a look at that. I think it sounded okay, but some... Okay, so, you know, Slovakian developer. I think it wasn't certainly at that time something that you know, everybody would have would have jumped at the chance. And you know, I remember you and the then head of HR here really kind of pestered to you know have some some meetings together and and actually you know go into that meeting with an open mind and and listening about what H H was and is how it was trying to do things very differently. Started to really kind of prick some interest. I still thought it was potentially, you know, recruitment agent sales spiel. Um, and then and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, this sounds Never. all too good. No, no, I was like, this sounds all too good. You know, private developer, no red tape, no listed, no investor, no fund structure. You know, they just do entrepreneurial things in a different way to make money out of development. That sounds, sounds all too good to be true. And then I remember one of you persuaded me to go to Slovakia and I went to Slovakia and met all the people there and looked actually what what we're doing out there and you know this isn't this isn't me selling hp Revis, but honestly just telling you how i felt but i came back from that trip realizing how 
potentially lazy and complacent we are in London in the fact that, you know, you build a half-decent office building and they're all pretty good, right? You turn up with a tenant. Now, you know, you go, you go to Bratislava, where we're doing schemes of five, six million square feet, or, you know, you go to Warsaw, where we're doing Europe's new tallest tower. And, you know, the thought process behind what you design to try and attract an occupier and then how you deliver it seems to be so much deeper and so much more thoughtful and thinking, actually, if we applied that to something in London, it'd be really interesting. So I went there and heard that they really were trying to do something different. And obviously, there's a different business model where we, we do everything in-house from, you know, uh, design, procurement, development, leasing, construction, asset management. And I just thought, yeah, this would be this would be a great opportunity. And obviously, at that time, it was really to take care of, you know, the, the more property functions. So, you know, leasing, investment, asset management, marketing. And I think, I don't think I was at that point, I was the best person for that job. But I think I was the person at the time who was the most open-minded. And I think that's why I got that job. I think there are other people far more qualified than me. You, you, went, you went through the, you know, obviously the recruitment process, looking at different candidates. But I would imagine there's people more suited, better qualified, smarter than me. But as I said, I think it was my open-mindedness to, to them as a business and, and the business model they wanted to execute here, which probably got me that job. Well, that's... And some of the, you know, that, that might have been what, what got you the job. But I am curious about how you made the decision. Okay. You, you've got a young family, haven't you? You've got, you've yeah. got a sort of um, still a relatively sort of you know, young career, sort of 31, 32 at BNP, running, running the West End. You could foresee the, probably the next five, if not 10 years at BNP, very, very safely and securely. Yeah. How did you make that decision or why did you make that decision to leave that behind for this new upstart? A few things, you know, you realize that it wasn't a startup, right? I mean, at that point, I think when I joined, you know, we still talked about the business in the realms of billions, not not millions. And like I said, you go there and see the size and scale of projects that have been done in Europe or Central Eastern Europe. And we hadn't finished one here yet, but we had they had 33 Central, which was under construction, I think. They were just about to start um Cooper and Southwark. So it wasn't a startup, right? So yeah, the, the, the mindset was very different. But... but there's there's plenty of sort of developers who have got an excellent track record in, in yeah. all around the globe and have and have crashed against the rocks of London, haven't they? Um yeah. so it was there was no doubt there was a, a risk here. No, but I, I, I believe them. Like I said, I spent I spent the time to really understand the the mentality of the business and you know, looking at you know how we control costs and delivery, the the depth of thought that goes into how we design buildings for potential customers. I just believe that if you did that, you would win. I really believe in the business model, and you know, back to our earlier earlier part of the conversation, still niggling in the back of my mind is you know turning down that client job all those years ago, and so being really open when I came to HP Rubis, I took a pay cut originally because it was just something I really wanted to do, and I couldn't see an opportunity like this. Again, because you know, BNP having the having the ability to influence and impact on a on a business was something I really enjoyed. And here I could do that again. Yes, you, you could go to a more established developer or client, but I suspect I would not have had any ability to really influence. I would have been told to, you know, do the same job that the guy who's just left has been doing for the past seven years or something. And that, that wasn't what I wanted. All right. Well let's talk a bit more about that. How was that transition? It's something you mentioned that you know you you had had on a plan or an, or an ambition 
Yeah. But now you've done it, what did it actually mean in terms of your development and what did you need to learn in, in those first few days? Uh, I think, interesting, the first, the first few days I realised how I'd probably been a really bad investment advisor because I really didn't know what actually happened to uh, a <laughs> client. So that, that was a pretty steep learning curve to be like, oh, I actually thought I knew something and it turns out I know absolutely nothing. And the big, the biggest change for me was that, you know, that switch, not just for me, but in general, from, from the attitude of me to we. So, you know, when you've got a group of people all working on the same thing, all trying to achieve the same thing, which is just successful projects, it was just a totally different atmosphere and a totally different way of getting things done because it was, it was so much more collaborative and trying to harness that kind of collaborative environment to kind of push to make the project better was, you know, it just had to be done in a very different way to in an agency business. So I think the focus on, again, looking at further developing how you were motivated to get the best out of people was, um, was key for me. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a super steep learning curve at, at that point, and that was only just kind of, you know, looking at the property side, that's before we get to, you know, the world of procurement and construction, which obviously we, we do as well. Again, part of the research, I spoke to someone who was, uh, who was around you these very, very early days. And there's, there's, I think there's something here that we're seeing a bit of a trend. So I, I asked them again, what, do, what were the three things they remembered most of, of Stephen Skinner and their first impressions? So the, fir- the first one's very kind. It's, uh, I recognise he was an excellent listener, very quick to make decisions, very demanding. <laughs> so the, the third one's the theme here, isn't it? Where do you get that from? Why isn't 90% good enough? I just want it to be perfect. You know, I'm asked, you know, I don't, I don't own a business. I've always, I've always been an employee. And, and like I said before, I really want to be useful. And I really, I really want to, I, I take pleasure out of doing a good job for somebody else. And, you know, my definition of, of good means good. It's not good, but it's not, oh, you know, we just missed this. It's like, no, 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 it's good. And if it's not good, it's not good enough. And I think, I think I've slightly. It's interesting. So I'm guessing that was an HBO's person you talked to, and it's interesting that they would they would have that view because I think. Do I you think am, you're mellowing at all? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure, for sure, for sure, because it's it's far less aggressive now. It's demanding in a different way. I think I've learned I've learned over the years, like I say, that you can demand it. You can be demanding without just having a stick. You can be demanding. You know, I, I'm a big believer in role modeling, right? So like I'm demanding of myself, and I think you know people now have those high expectations of of myself. And then seeing how how you behave and how you're you know critical of your, yourself and you know I'm a big believer in taking ownership of things myself. So you know if something doesn't go to plan, it's not it's not necessarily the team's fault or the people's fault involved. The, the first person I look at is myself. I say okay, what what was I not clear with? What could I help them more? And I think maybe that that's where they they see the demanding side. The second point was that quick to make decisions. Yeah. Has that ever got you in hot water? It's interesting though to say that because I think the final decision making is often very quick, but it's as a result of the first point. And I'm a, I'm a big, big believer of listening more than talking. I feel you know you can you know, you, you're learning twice as much when someone else is speaking rather than you're speaking because you already know what you want to say. So you know I do believe in the ability to make quick decisions. I think is because you know I try to give everybody the platform to give their opinion on whatever it is we need to make a decision on. And I want people to be, you know, radically free with their opinion so they can say what they really think, well, they, what, what they think somebody else wants to hear. 
and we can, you know, we, we, I, I really try to have a, a culture of challenge with that, that we can really challenge each other to make sure we do make the right decision because then, then we can make it quickly. I wouldn't say I, I'm, not an, I'm not an impulse guy at all. I worry too much to be an impulse guy. Now, ordinarily, we'd spend a bit of time chatting about the, uh, this new gig you've got as uh, head of investment for, uh, for HP Revis at, the, at the, the grand old age of 31 or 32. But you don't sit very long in that seat. And I, th- I think within uh, what it looked like about approximately 12 months' time, mm. there's another promotion on the cards. And this is a really big one. If, if the, the young guy of 32 made some waves about being appointed as sort of head of investment, the 33-year-old new chief exec of, of HB Rubis really did sort of grab some headlines, I think, didn't it? What was that like? What was that like to, be, to have, have that recognition and then be handed the keys for the UK business? Uh what did it feel like? You know, my, I remember where we were sitting in Quid, where, um, when they, when they told me, um, it's quite interesting. I literally, they, they called me about seven o'clock at night, just kind of the, the gym and said, we need to come to Koya urgently. I thought I was in trouble. I thought I was going to get fired. So I went, went to the restaurant where they told me and actually my, my initial, my initial reaction was just one of, I can't let these people down. I just can't let them down. You know, they've, they've, seen something in me which I can't I can't describe myself, which means they do trust me with this, especially, you know, speaking speaking a different language. And I'm not gonna let them down. I'll do anything I can to make sure we're successful was my was my initial reaction. Did you feel ready for it? Uh, I don't know. I think I'd spent the first twelve months here not necessarily focusing on the things that I knew, but actually spending the time to focus on the things that I didn't know. So I didn't know anything at that point, you know, I didn't know anything about procurement. I didn't know anything about, you know, technical building design. I didn't know anything about construction management. I didn't know anything about, you know, what a trade package was and how, how we, well, how we can optimize those. So I actually spent all of my time asking thousands of annoying questions about those parts of our business. So when we had, you know, we'd have kind of a UK leadership team, (laughs) I'm quite annoying at asking the question, why, why, why? So I felt I felt I understood the business enough and you know I'd seen somebody else doing it. I wouldn't I wouldn't say I thought I was necessarily ready or even the right person for it. It was just something to get on with and you know think think about what changes for me and, and trying to do it in the absolute best way possible because it was just like I said, I, I did not and I do not want to let these people down who who have given me these opportunities. Let's put it into a bit of context for anyone who isn't necessarily familiar with either Central London sort of office or HP Rewis particularly. What was what was happening at the business? What was how much was was invested and how many projects were running? At that point, we had I think we just finally closed on thirty three Central. And give or take, there's there's two two and a bit billion pounds worth of GDV to to, to go after. And at any point, does that strike? fear no. in what you're doing did it ever, ever did they, you know it was did you ever think i'm not sure this is what i want to do no no it felt exactly what i want to do and, and like i said that the shift was okay how do we do it how can we do it better how can we make sure you know take out the risk create opportunity go after every pound you know either extra pound or save pound on on construction cost it, it, it just very quickly switched to Let's, you know, what, what can I do to make it better? Because, you know, I, I inherit a platform and a position. It's okay, let's, let's push it on to the next stage. But it wasn't terrifying. And, and like I said, even, even when you look at the different sizes of the project, it doesn't, 
it doesn't bother me at all if we do big projects or small projects. The, the mentality is exactly the same. Just wanting to kind of do you know perfect perfect execution or achieve betterment um, in some way within within those projects. Okay, so I, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time then on that promotion and also those let's say those sort of those first twelve months, because we I don't want to underplay it. HB Revis at this at this time now is really making waves. It's extremely active in, in what you know what was considered really a bit of a sort of an oligarch in terms of the commercial development. You're now the 33 year old CEO. What were you learning at this point in order to make sure you could maintain that same pace? I think you know moving to having responsibility for areas of a, of a business which you know I didn't know in as much detail as other people was the first challenge. So as I said before, you know, un- understanding, you know, we have a fully fledged construction management business, you know, we build our own buildings and, you know, really, really understanding what that was, how we use it and how we can really optimize it for, for our performance, I think was the, was the first step and really understanding how, how that all, all, all fell into place with, with the wider, wider UK business. So there was really some kind of, you know, technical, technical challenges around that because you know i wanted i wanted to be able to add value to those conversations not not just be a passenger and defer to the leaders of leaders of those teams and you know within within that in itself it means that you have to you know i had to become more more trusting in a way learn learn how to ask you know almost like the right questions or the or the right question or the killer question but then be able to to trust in people who were there to, to kind of execute and deliver in an area where I didn't have as much experience as they did. And I think that was that was a, a learning curve. Because, you know, ultimately I was responsible for it, but they clearly knew more than me on, on the content. So so learning how to deal with that, because before I was very comfortable. I was, I was in a, you know, even kind of the transaction director or head of investment role. It was, it was in an area that I felt very comfortable with, which is, you know, direct property assumptions, basically how we make money out of development. But, you know, all these other areas of the business, which I didn't, understand as well you know that can be legal tax accounting like i say construction procurement so learning how to adapt to be able to filter through you know complex information where you're not a technical specialist to be able to make a decision was it was a skill that i needed to pick up pretty quickly that was a process of um and for a while probably annoying people asking question after question you know asking for you know just time with them sitting down one-on-one to really understand um what they did and, and what really mattered as part of their their job and the the second the second real point is is a development on uh, knowing knowing that you know me myself i'm no longer delivering on the ground tasks at all so all, all of my previous agenda is given up to, to somebody else and now it's really thinking about how how you motivate and enable people to do the best the best work they can and that's that's a totally different agenda to you know have we let this building yet which was what I was responsible for, for before. Um, let me ask you a, a question that's sort of in the back of my mind. So yeah. you, know, you you painted a, you know, a, a really funny picture, this sort of Sheffield lad with his you know, two odd brown shoes at the very, very start, <laughs> who, yeah. who, who, who sort of not long after sort of moves down to London. And, and the way you, maybe I, maybe tell me if I'm misinterpreting it, but, it's, but it sounds like you felt a bit like an outsider. You didn't necessarily fit in. I now, still feel like that today. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do, do you do you feel like that? Do you do you feel part of the tapestry or not? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And 
I think in some kind of strange way, I, I feel really comfortable in that role. I feel comfortable in, you know, being, I suppose, slightly different, being, you know, I would like us and potentially me to an extent to be to be seen as being disruptors. And I feel like I'm, I'm comfortable in that role. And, you know, something I said earlier, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not necessarily here to be liked or to make lots of friends. If that's a, if that's a byproduct, that's great. But I, I actually spend almost zero time with anybody in property outside of work and it's all about the you know it's all about the result for me and I often say rightly or wrongly that you know when we're when we're working with people we don't even have to like each other as long as you're the best person for the job that's fine by me so as long as you're going to give every single thing for, for us and what we're trying to achieve and put us first that's all I want whether we like each other and you know go and play golf together not that play golf but you know that's that's I've got no interest in that it's easy to, I think, to for anyone listening here to think everything's fallen into place because it, you've you've achieved so much in such a short period of time and you've done it successively over and over again. When hasn't it gone right? The last last say, let's say, take last sort of three years you know, as, as running HB Revis UK. I mean, if you look back, or what would you've done differently, or when has when hasn't that gone right? I think at H, uh, HBR, if I sit here and think about you know, some some regrets or things that haven't gone as well as they could do I think at project level I'm happy things go right things go wrong it's fine we, we, we do our best there I think for me it's really um, again potentially on on the people side either the you know certainly in the in the early days not not being good at figuring out how to give people you know you go back to the point of me being demanding and I think I've evolved a lot from you know the original me of being demanding could have actually been a little bit negative for some people and I think I didn't I didn't soften early enough with that whereas now I think I'm, I'm much more kind of uh, I think caring is the right word or, or thoughtful towards people in how I am how I am being demanding and you know I think early on you know potentially to make up for my own insecurities or deficiencies in terms of age and number of years of experience you know we looked at potentially hiring some people who were um, you know more senior than me in terms of years under their belt um, I think that was a kind of almost a compensating mechanism for me. So hired on kind of, you know, the, the CV and the, I say the, the years of experience rather than the attitude. And actually, what 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 we need really is is people with the right attitude who can figure everything out. So that that that's you know where where people haven't worked out here is is something that I struggle with because I, I take that really personally. That either either we didn't help that person succeed. Or we brought the wrong person in and you know it's, it's stressful for them as much as it is for us and, and that that's something that you know like i said i take quite personally as a as a failure well there's no i think there's no doubt if, if there's a scorecard there's been a lot more successes than has been failures um <laughs> this is an easy question to ask isn't it now stephen skinner now is 36 or 37 years old 36 don't don't age me off yet please <laughs> I've got one more. I've got one more month being thirty-six. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Made the most of it. Um, yeah. What next? Do you allow yourself to sit, you know, to sit back and 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 make make this next plan? Uh, I mean, look. One one thing for me is there's no there's no end game. Right? I hear people talk about um, you know an age they want to retire by or other things they want to go and do in life. Go and work in you know other sectors. Do a different job. You know go on holiday, go and play golf all day. Not, none of that is interesting to me. I have a relatively obsessive focus on my job and you know, real estate generally. And I'll keep doing exactly what I'm doing. I don't, um, you know, 
my job doesn't feel like a job. I enjoy it. It feels like almost a hobby, as cliche as that sounds. You know, I can't imagine the footballers turn up every day um, not enjoying their job, and that's 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 like it is for me. So, you know, I think the future is you know London office development or investment for for many many years to come. Because, like I say, there's no there's no end game. And you know, I look at some of the grandees of the industry. You know, you take somebody like, I'm being honest, on like you know Joe Ronson. You know, I've read his book three times and, you know, he lives not too far from me. And, you know, I often see him still driving himself to work in his car. And, and, you know, that's the type of person I kind of get inspired by, look up to and think, you know, that's 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 what I want to be doing when I'm his age. You know, still visiting his petrol stations and still in the office six days a week. So I think, yeah, the future will be more, more of the same for me. Okay. Well, I think I think that's a really sort of positive note then for us to, to draw things up to, uh, to a close for, mate. So listen, Stephen, thank you so much, mate, for for being so honest and, so, and in many ways sort of almost too humble sometimes um, uh, about this career. There's no doubt people who may listen to this and think and, and find this incredibly inspiring. So thanks again. Okay. No, no, no problem. Like I said, I hope, um, it's not in there explicitly, but I just hope there's young people who are in or in and about our industry who realise... Um, you know, they don't need to be like everybody else to succeed. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.